Welcome to PWC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PWC's Tax Readiness Webcast Series held on March 20, 2019, covering state tax reform implications. The panelists for the webcast were Eric Burkheiser, a partner in PWC's State and Local Tax Practice Group, and the firm's State and Local Income Tax Leader. Jim Manley and Tina Skidmore, both partners in the State and Local Tax Practice Group, and Rebecca Lee, a principal in PwC's International Tax Services Group. This excerpt consists of a discussion of certain provisions of federal tax reform that have significant impacts at the state tax level. Have a listen. Um, so from, a, from an agenda standpoint, what we plan to cover off on today is, is Rebecca is going to sort of set the table for us and get into the federal dynamics of tax reform that we're planning to cover off. So we're planning to cover off on 163J, guilty, and Section 250, the guilty deduction, as well as the FDII deduction. And just, again, give a general federal overview. We know a significant piece of this audience are state tax professionals. So we're going to give the federal overview because it really does set the table, quite frankly, for the state discussion that Jim and Tina are going to primarily lead us through. Um, going through those same provisions, but baking them down to a separate company uh, basis or a basis that deals with combined states that don't follow the 1502 provisions, and there's a number of those, uh, so you need to be aware that this isn't just a separate company issue. It's a combined state issue, too, where it's not explicit they follow 1502. Um, and we're going to give a little bit of discussion and automa- discussion around automation and what we're thinking in that regard um, and what we're trying to educate clients on from a how do we make things a little bit more efficient as we are dealing with a lot of these challenging provisions you know how do we get them on tax returns and how do we get them into provisions and the like so we want to deal with that and then cover off on some miscellaneous uh, items uh, on the state side dealing with tax reform so Rebecca um, how do you see clients coordinating from a federal and state team perspective in dealing with tax reform You know, I I wish we all had time to talk more, and I wish we all had more hours in the day to do that, because I think folks are running so fast right now in terms of being able to do the planning that they need to do, to be able to pull together the information that they need for their provisions and ultimately for their returns. Um, And some of that data is maybe not as well organized as they would have hoped uh, this far into the process. So a lot of the federal teams are just running so fast that they're kind of throwing things over the transom to the state team and hoping that it all hangs together and makes sense. Um, You know, my hope for solution is that webcasts like this will help bring people together and help tee up the folks in the audience to have the types of questions that they want to go back and ask their federal teams so that there's better coordination. And I know something that I've learned even from the prep for this panel has been how much these topics are related and how we need to think differently about pulling our state tax colleagues in. Yeah, got to work together, make it happen. All right. So I'm going to cover all of the international provisions in tax reform in about 15 minutes. So as you can tell, this is going to be a deep (laughs) dive. You know, sit back and enjoy. Um, but the goal of this section is, is not to do a deep dive on any particular federal issue. It's really more about making you guys better equipped to appreciate everything that Jim and Tina are going to walk through on how there are adjustments at the state level that you need to make based on the federal data that you've pulled together. And to be able to do that, you need a working vocabulary with respect to the significant provisions of tax reform. First one I'm going to speak to is 163J, which is the interest limitation. And so 
Big picture, new 163J is intended to be an interest limitation on the deduction for net business interest expense, which is your net business interest income over your net business interest expense. And your limitation is 30% of your overall taxable income. And for taxable years prior to, um, from 2017 to 2022, that limitation, that ATI, adjusted taxable income, is roughly equal to your EBITDA. Uh, for years after 2022, uh, it's going to be roughly equal to your EBIT. And so you lose the ability to add back deductions and amortization. Um, you may hear, if you follow our uh, inside tax policy work, um, that there are a number of um, clients out there who are advocating for saving uh, the add back for depreciation and amortization. You may hear, save the DA. Um, so we're hopeful that perhaps that limitation will stay the higher number. Um, and that matters in a lot of circumstances. This interest limitation of 30% of your adjusted taxable income applies to related party and unrelated income. So it's sort of a worldwide interest limitation. And it's very similar for those of you who have international operations to some of the rules that the OECD has proposed in various jurisdictions where that limitation may range from 10 to 30%. Um, a couple of things that are going to be material to the balance of the discussion we're going to have today around how the deduction works. Uh, the first thing is in guidance going all the way back to some of the conference reports and most recently in the proposed regulations that the IRS has issued, the limitation is determined in the U.S. at the consolidated group level. And to get to that U.S. consolidated group number, you basically disregard intercompany transactions within the U.S. consolidated group. So you're really looking at external interest income and external interest expense. Um, on the flip side, if you do not follow on a file on a consolidated basis, so for example, you have deconsolidated subs where you own less than 80% of the vote and value, those entities have to test their own 163J limitation on a separate entity basis. Um, and oftentimes, this was a little bit controversial coming into the proposed regulations around how we get to this consolidation. The proposed regulations have made it sort of fairly straightforward that it's through pure and real disregarding of those intercompany transactions. And this, this becomes important when we think about what your work papers look like from a federal standpoint to be able to do the handoff for your state colleagues to be able to do their state tax calculations. You know, I tend to think the easiest way to think about this is to look at an example. So in this, and we're going to use some simplified examples through the course of the next 10 minutes as we walk through various pieces of the uh, federal international tax provisions. Uh, this example tees up fairly nicely. On the left-hand side, you have an example of a U.S. consolidated group where you have $1,000 of ATI, you have $100 of interest expense, but that interest expense is in a holding company which itself on a separate entity basis has no adjusted taxable income and it just has the interest expense of the group. And when we do this calculation on a consolidated basis, I have $1,000 of ATI, I have $300 of interest expense sort of capacity in my limitation, and I have $100 of interest expense. And so I get to fully deduct my $100 of interest expense in my US consolidated group. To compare, on the right side, if I'm looking at this on a non-consolidated basis, or if I were looking at one of these entities being a less than 80% vote and value company, so it's deconsolidated for my US consolidated group, I have my hold co in the middle that has $100 of interest expense and no ATI. 
no adjusted taxable income against which it can determine its limitation. And on the flip side, US 2 has $1,000 of adjusted taxable income and no interest deductions. So you're going to end up, if you are evaluating these on a separate company basis, or if these were not part of a consolidated group, you're going to end up with a $100 interest expense limitation, or putting it differently, I've got no ATI and 30% of nothing is nothing. So I'm going to end up with no interest deduction at my holding company. Um, another sort of item to call out, we're using very simplified examples. And you'll see, during the course of our discussion today, we're oftentimes going to talk about the US consolidated group, and we'll do some compares and contrasts between consolidated and non-consolidated. 163J also applies at the controlled foreign corporation or CFC level. And the way in which it applies is in general, it applies on a separate CFC by CFC basis. So you do the same calculation we've discussed here on a federal basis. You just do it entity by entity for state uh, for, uh, for your CFCs with a caveat that there is an election available in the proposed regulations under 163J-7, which allows you, it's called the group election, and it is what it sounds like. You can group together all of your CFCs and basically look to what is the net amount of limitation that you have between your CFCs. The mechanics of the calculation, and this will be important when we start talking about guilty in a few minutes, you go through and for each company you figure out what its net business interest expenses, and then you look at what are my companies that have excess capacity and what are my companies that have excess limitation. And you can share that excess capacity across all of your CFCs. And if after you look at all of your CFCs, you have excess taxable income that hasn't been utilized to create interest deduction limitation by your CFCs, the US shareholder with respect to that CFC or CFC group is permitted to take into account basically the subpart F and guilty income, uh, excluding the section 78 gross up in determining its limitation. So there's a lot of spreading and sharing of income amongst affiliated entities, uh, which when we start looking at some examples on the state side, I think you end up having to disaggregate a lot of that information, which is oftentimes being commingled in people's calculations. So switching gears, gears to guilty. You can think of guilty fundamentally as a global minimum tax. Um, in a pre-tax reform world, if you had foreign corporations you, that are owned directly or indirectly by US persons, you would have current inclusions for so-called subpart F income, which are a variety of categories of passive type income. And all other categories of income were subject to deferral until you made remittances or dividends back to the United States. Um, guilty combined with the toll charge, which I understand you guys covered in detail in a prior webcast, uh, basically the toll charge reset the playing field. So all previously taxed earnings and profits were taxed by means of the rates prescribed in the toll charge. And so now companies have this big pool of previously taxed earnings and profits. And then on a go forward basis, you have two buckets of income. You have your subpart F income, which is still that passive type income and it's taxed at a higher rate. And you have your guilty income, which is taxed at a relatively lower rate. And there are some very detailed mechanics on how we get to that lower rate. It's not just like the toll charge where you have two different rates that apply. You start with an inclusion by the US shareholder with respect to its tested income. And frankly, it's tested income over tested loss. And then that's adjusted by your net deemed ta tangible income return. And this is a concept that you'll see repeated when we start talking about foreign derived intangible income or FDII, which is also an adjustment made under Section 250. Um, 
the way in which we get to that lower sort of global minimum tax is by virtue of the Section 250 deduction, which is a 50% deduction reduced in later years um, against the income that you include under guilty. And similarly, there's a whole bunch of corollary adjustments. You have haircuts to the amount of foreign tax credits you're permitted to take. There's 16 new foreign tax credit buckets. I can highly recommend one of the other webcasts that covers these issues in much more detail. Um, but the biggest piece is, and I'm going to switch to the next page just to use the, show the example because I think it's uh, illustrative. Uh, and I'll even go one further because I want to go to the separate versus group. Um, one of the biggest challenges that's going to be relevant when we talk about the state adjustments here is how you go about calculating tested income and tested loss in a consolidated group. And if we do a compare and contrast left side versus right side, tested income is determined on an entity by entity basis. And so you look at all of their income that's not subpart F and you figure out whether you have tested income or tested loss. Then you go and you combine those items, and you combine them on a U.S. shareholder level because guilty or that global minimum tax is a U.S. shareholder attribute. It is not a CFC by CFC attribute. And so in the example on the left, calculated on a shareholder by shareholder basis, you can see as I group on a U.S. shareholder by U.S. shareholder basis, I get net 200, and for U.S. shareholder 1, I get guess U.S. shareholder 2, has only a tested loss company, and it gets no benefit from that, and shareholder three has $600 of tested income. And to do a compare and contrast with the right side, which illustrates a consolidated um, group scenario, you start out with the same core numbers, CFC1 having 200 of tested income, CFC2 having 200 of tested loss, CFC3 having 100 of tested loss, and being owned solely by U.S. shareholder two, and CFC4 having its $600 of tested income. But what you see mechanically is you start out looking at what are all of my items of tested income, my 200 and my 600 gives me 800 of tested income, and then I know I have 300 of tested loss, aggregating all the entities that are owned 80% vote value together, and I basically take that tested loss and allocate it pro rata to all the participants. So, Materially to our discussion today, I'm doing a very different calculation on a consolidated basis to figure out what is the tax associated from a guilty standpoint with each of these spheres of income because I'm taking tested losses from the entire group and allocating them pro rata rather than looking at what each shareholder would have individually. So again, rounding out everyone's kind of working vocabulary of what these terms are, we talk about Section 250, and two, Section 250 does double duty. With respect to your global minimum tax, your guilty income, it is the deduction by the U.S. shareholder against its inclusion of guilty income to get you to that lower effective rate. FDII is basically the equivalent, foreign-derived intangible income, but it's broader than just intangibles. FDII is intended to basically make U.S. companies ambivalent about whether they locate high-value intangibles like IP in the U.S. or outside the U.S. Because the idea is if you locate certain, and I'll use IP for sake of illustration, you locate certain kinds of IP in the United States where normally you would have been taxed at our highest marginal rate, which drops substantially to 21% as part of tax reform. Um, but we give you the benefit of an even lower rate by virtue of a deduction under Section 250, which is very similar to the deduction that you would have had had you earned guilty income offshore. Um, and there's 
very detailed proposed regulations that have been issued on how you arrive at what types of income are eligible for the FDII benefit, as well as how you work through the mechanics of the calculation. You can see a bunch of the terms on this slide. I am not going to torture you with a bunch of abbreviations, but I want to take you through the mechanics of this, and we can walk through the example on the next slide, because I have to look at a couple of data points. I have to start with deduction eligible income, which is going to be informed by all of those rules and the regulations. I'm going to calculate my deemed tangible income return, uh, and then I'm going to multiply that by my foreign derived ratio, which is going to look at my foreign derived deduction eligible income over my deduction eligible income, which is really a fancy way to say if I started with deduction eligible income, I know some of it's foreign and some of it's US, and I look at that ratio to figure out how much of a benefit I get from FDII. And in this case, you know, we use an example where there's 10% of my income is foreign derived so that I drive a 10% uh, calculated benefit on my FDII income. And so this is the most important slide because we're going to reference this for the balance of the discussion. All of these rules interact. <laughs> And because they all interact, you have to think about the order in which you apply them, not just to make your work papers work, but because they will each inform how much of a deduction is permitted. And you'll notice they're a little bit circular. So step one is you calculate your tentative Section 250 deduction without regard to 163J, your net operating losses, and other adjustments. Next, and because I need to know adjusted taxable income to figure out my 163J limitation, I calculate my disallowance under 163J, taking into account your tentative 250 deduction, but without regard to your NOLs. Then I take into account my NOLs. Then, knowing what my tentative taxable income looks like, now I can determine my uh, foreign-derived intangible income benefit, which required me to know how much income that I have that's in certain buckets. And then finally, having done all of that, I can finalize my calculation of the Section 250 deduction determined after application of all the limitations above. So if I end up with excess interest expense so that I have a 163J limitation, that will ultimately come back and prevent me from, or you know, that will add back income that will then be available for a 250 deduction. And similarly, if I end up with less taxable income because I'm fully allowed to deduct my interest and I have no 163J limitation, that'll have a downstream impact on my calculation of my FDII benefit. Sounds easy. Yeah, no, it's totally, <laughs> so my work here is done. Um, but and, and here's a calculation. Uh, we're not going to walk through the details, but what it's intended to show you is that all of these numbers interact. And one of the biggest challenges I think folks are going to run into is a lot of times, I don't know about you guys, but I've experienced, teams may run these in silos. So you have the team that's gathering all the information and running the 163J limitation. And you have a team that's doing all the work to figure out how much your income is eligible for FDII. And you're doing a bunch of work papers that may end up being separate. And because of this ordering rule, you're going to end up at the end of the day having to bring it all together in a way that coordinates all the provisions. And I think, as you said, the critical nature of the federal team working with the state team is going to be paramount to be able to make this happen come return time in the next several months. So Absolutely. planning for it now is, is critical. So thank you, Rebecca. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please email the speakers. You can find their contact information in the description of this episode. Thank you. Thank you.